Welcome back to Air Power and International Security, brought to you by the University of Portsmouth. Today we have a great episode for you, Air Power in the Six Days War. I've been looking forward to this episode for some time now. This is probably the most decisive use of air power ever. So I'm asking Ilan Warshai, a reserve colonel in the Israeli army, airline pilot and historian with the Israeli Air Force Historical Branch, how Israel was able to employ air power in such an effective way. The Six-Day War, as the name suggests, wasn't very long. After achieving air superiority incredibly quickly, Israeli land forces were able to advance and capture key strategic areas with relative ease, forcing the coalition of Arab states, primarily consisting of Egyptian, Syrian and Jordanian forces, to surrender and concede those territories to Israel. Now, the war took place in 1967 and was the third Arab-Israeli conflict in less than two decades. In the months preceding this war, tensions had been rising after the president of Egypt, General Nasser, had closed the Straits of Tehran to Israeli shipping and had mobilised the Egyptian army right on the Israeli border. So in response, Israel launched a devastating series of airstrikes against the Egyptian air force that were caught completely off guard. So now that the background of the conflict is complete, let's ask Ilan more about the air campaign. Thanks for joining me today, Ilan. Really appreciate you taking the time to uh, discuss the Six Days War with me, uh, because it's, well, I would argue that it's probably one of the most impressive uses of air power in all of history. So the outbreak of the Six Days War is, is a culmination of various tensions between the Arab states and Israel. And Israel essentially tries to launch a preemptive attack. And if, you know, the history of the Second World War and Pearl Harbor have taught us anything, air power is, is essential if you want to launch a preemptive attack. How long had the Israeli Air Force been planning this attack? How prepared were they for it? Uh, if we go back, the main lesson of uh, the 1966 Sinai campaign, as far as Israel was concerned, was that uh, there should be an emphasis on three key issues in the Israeli, in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. Air Force, armor, and paratroopers. All of those were aimed at making a swift war, as swift as possible, focusing on delivering, as you said, preemptive attack and moving the war as quickly as possible from Israel to the Arab side, to, to Arab lands, uh, because of a uh, lack of territory and uh, geography and so on. The Israeli Air Force was preparing preemptive attack on airfields, on Arab airfields, back in 1948, but didn't make it because of lack of hardware. In 1956, also didn't do it at the time, because at uh, the time, uh, the uh, France and the United Kingdom uh, were in, in pact with Israel, and they were tasked with uh, uh, attacking the, Isra the Egyptian Air Force air bases. And the, uh, consequently, the, the Israel Air Force was uh, preparing for more than 10 or 15 years for this mission, uh, was constantly updating the files on not only on on, on Egypt uh, Egyptian air force bases, also on Syrian air force bases and Jordanian and even Iraqi air force bases. The first move of the war, the first preemptive move, was 
אופריישן, היברו is called מוקד, it's Hebrew word for focus, Israel Air Force attack on Arab airfield, there was a follow on move by Israeli land forces, as far as the entire IDF was concerned, the Air Force, Israeli Air Force preemptive attack on the airfields, on the Egyptian airfields, was the key for the entire campaign. because it was the sole solution for eliminating the about 400 Egyptian military jets, thus clearing the sky over the battlefield and enabling the Israeli Air Force to give free close air support to the Israeli divisions advancing in the Sinai Peninsula. At the beginning of the war, June 5th, 1967, 7.45 a.m., Israel was dealing only with Egypt, although other, country, other Arab countries were also being prepared for, for war, and especially Syria and Jordan. And on that morning, after hostilities started, Israel tried politically and rhetorically to Uh, convince Jordan and Syria not to take part in the war. I mean, it sounds to me like an incredibly effective, incredibly successful use of air power. Being able to muster that much force that quickly and destroy, four, as you say, 400 Egyptian aircraft. You know, the collective of Arab states presumably outnumbers Israel and it has comparable technology. How long did it take the Israeli Air Force to destroy those 400 jets? First, in, uh, in Egypt, uh, I think that Israel destroyed about 300 of the jets, uh, but it practically knocked down uh, most of the, uh, of the Egyptian Air Force. Israel planned for the entire first day, which is about six or seven hours, to knock down the Egyptian Air Force. Uh, and um, as it turned out, after about three hours, the mission was complete. Now, Israel at the time had about 200 military jets, and the, uh, the Egyptians has, had about 15 airfields and 400 jets. How do you use 200 aircraft, military jets, against 15 targets, and you must launch, uh, obviously, several formations for each airfield? The key issue within Israel Air Force was, was quick turnaround of the aircraft in the base and uh, also what the Israeli Air Force call emergency positioning. In Israel, in the Israeli Air Force, no pilot flies a desk only. All pilots are operational pilots. If they are currently holding uh, positions other than in the squadrons, in the active operational squadrons, They have an emergency position under which they return to the original squadron and operate as a regular pilot in the squadron. Uh, obviously, you have to uh, keep on um, training them. So once a week, every pilot in the Israeli Air Force go back to, its to his original squadron and take a full training day. And also... A large portion of the Israeli air crew at the time, and also today, were reserve pilots. So Israel was able to have 
relatively small or modest active force and being able to expand it um, during a war uh, to operate those 200 aircraft to match the 400 plus aircraft of the Arab side. So the, so the Israeli Air Force were well-trained. Would you say that it was better trained than its, its, its adversaries then? Undoubtedly, the Israel Air Force was well-trained, but both Israel and Egypt um, did not uh, have a lot of uh, actual military experience. You may say that the Mirage 3, which was, which was uh, the frontline interceptor of the Israeli Air Force, was about the same as the MiG-21. It has its advantages and disadvantages, obviously. Uh, one thing, though, uh, that Israel uh, did, uh, I think, had the, the, the upper hand or the, the qualitative edge was the fact that in Israel there was no division, for instance, between interceptors and bombers or attack aircraft. Every aircraft was, or most of them, were considered to be fighter bombers. And for instance, the Mirage 3, which was uh, designed by the French as a pure Mach 2 interceptor carrying only missiles, air-to-air missiles, was operated in Israel for ground attack also. And uh, in fact, uh, it attacked the most heavily defended uh, Egyptian uh, airfield in the vicinity of uh, Cairo, for instance, uh, making use of, its, uh, of this aircraft's uh, agility, airspeed, maneuverability, and um, at the time, I must also stress that at the time of uh, Operation Focus, the first, the first morning of the war, when Israel launched it, its preemptive strike, out of 200 aircraft, only 12 Mirage interceptors were left on QRA in Israel, defending the entire country against a possible Arab attack. Israel gambled big time on the success of Operation Focus. That does seem to be a common theme within military history. The, the most impressive victories are often a gamble. You know, Nelson at Trafalgar, huge gamble. Had the wind not gone his way, then it would have been disastrous. But it, it is amazing that Israel were able to muster and concentrate their force in such a manner. But why were the Arab states, why was Egypt not able to detect this? Was it simply that Israel took out their radar, their frontline radar stations first and disrupted their command structure or, or something else? Generally speaking, Israel favoured a, a higher level of intelligence gathering and analysis than the Arab side. Israel did use several... Uh, electronic warfare, warfare devices in order to blind Egyptian radars. We still, I, I think we still don't know even today how effective were they. Israel only had about four electronic warfare aircraft and they were all operating at the time. Uh, but uh, nobody's sure even today because uh, the Egyptians did, uh, have not released so far any documents, uh, official documents, uh, <laughs> regarding this war. And um, also Israel was um, using several deception method tactics, other than flying very low level, very, very low level underneath the Egyptian radar coverage. Other than that, 
on that morning, June 5th, 1967, eight Fuga Magister training aircraft, unarmed, were launched from the Israeli flight school, flown by Israeli air cadets, which were obviously unable to take part in the, in the war, but they knew how to fly their training aircraft. And each of them was giving his own uh, call sign and chattering in the radio for an hour, simulating another usual training day of the Israeli Air Okay, so it's a masterstroke in misinformation and deception on Israel's part. What happens after Israel has destroyed the Egyptian Air Force? Presumably they have to turn their attentions to the Jordanians uh, and the Syrian Air Force as well. How, how quickly does that have to take place? As I said earlier, bear in mind two things. One, uh, the success the, uh, in, in Egypt was overwhelming. Within three hours, about 300 Egyptian military jets, not only jets, uh, by the way, also with transport aircraft and heavy helicopters and so on, were ashes. On the other hand, the Israeli attempt to avoid the Syrians and Jordanians from taking part in the war failed. Within two hours, both Jordan and Syria attacked Israel. Consequently, after the first or even, I would say, the second wave of attack in Egypt, the third wave, which was also launched against Egypt in order to sustain the, the damages to the uh, Egyptian Air Force air bases and to catch and destroy any Egyptian aircraft still intact, those formations, most of them, were diverted in mid-air to attack Syrians and Jordanian airfields. The first thing to, that comes to mind there is, how on earth is that possible? Without you know, systematic intelligence gathering and mission planning, how does that take place mid-air? As I said, the, in the past 10 years before that, Israel Air, Force, Israel Air Force intelligence was, ga- was gathering everything it, c- it could find about air forces of, of Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Iraq, and other countries also. And bearing in mind that such a scenario was possible, all Israeli pilots were given maps in the cockpit covering targets both in Egypt and in Syria, Jordan, and Iraq. Also bear in mind, the Syrian and uh, Iraqi and Egyptian air forces had pretty much the same type of aircraft, MiG-21, MiG-17, Sohoi-7, and so on. Uh, Their airfields were mostly built by the British during the 20s, 30s, and 40s under the British mandate in the Middle East. So they were pretty much in the same concept. And the tactics of attacking an airfield, as far as the Israel Air Force, was the same. First, you bomb uh, with with very, most of the time, with very uh, uh, general purpose bombs. First, you bomb the, uh, the runway on two key points. And then you strafe with uh, your cannons, the 30 millimeters or 20 millimeters cannons, uh, strafe uh, on, uh, on the parking aircraft. Most of the uh, Arab airfields did not have, at the time, hardened air shelter. And consequently, Israel was able to use either general-purpose bombs 
or cannons to attack the runways and the aircraft themselves. They did not use uh, rockets at all, and very seldom did they use specially modified bombs with uh, rocket bombs uh, to smash the uh, runways. So the level of skill, ingenuity, and agility here on display is, is staggering, really, to be able to shift the mission focus from, from not just one base to another base, but to, from one country to another country, and then use you know what we probably consider today as relatively primitive weaponry to actually inflict these decisive results is, is incredible. Were the Israeli Air Force as effective at destroying the uh, Syrians and the Jordanians as they were the Egyptian Air Force? Very good question, sir. Both in Jordan and in Syria, Israel lacked the element of surprise. Nevertheless, after dealing with an air force of 400 jets, dealing with two other air forces that cumulatively had about 120, was relatively an easy task. But it did cost quite a lot of aircraft, of Israeli losses, to attack those airfields. Okay, the first three hours or so, Israel was aimed at Egypt, the Egyptian Air Force, and another three hours or so, uh, they aimed on at um, Jordan and Syria. The Jordanian Air Force was completely wiped out with its 20-something jets. The Syrian Air Force was not. Partly because of uh, some of its airfields being very remote from Israel and not being attacked at all. And those who were attacked, uh, some of them have have had uh, hardened air shelters, which the Israeli Air Force was unable to attack. So only the aircraft uh, either scrambling to the air or uh, parking with a exposed on uh, uh, flight lines on the ground, were attacked. The Syrians lost, if I remember correctly, about 40 aircraft, but they were effectively pushed away from the campaign as an air force because with the remaining aircraft that they still had, they focused almost solely on um, defending their territory, their homeland. As you might expect, I guess. Now, if we go back to the Egyptian Air Force, they're, they're facing staggering losses. I mean, that's that's a huge strategic defeat, almost instantaneous, isn't it? Losing your air, air force in three hours, basically. What what's their next move? How do they how do they react to this the ongoing attack? What do they do next? Well, bear in mind that uh, by the end of that day, the first day, they still had about. 80 to 100 serviceable uh, fighter jets. Not all of them frontline. Nevertheless, that's a military force. The Egyptians were able to rearrange themselves. Um, they deployed the remaining jets to other airfields which were not attacked. Some of them were secondary airfields, and some were, and one was even the civilian international airport of Cairo. And starting from the second morning, June 6, 1967, they did launch, apart from uh, having uh, uh, air patrols in, uh, over Egypt trying to uh, disrupt other attacks uh, on other targets in Egypt, they also launched several sorties, some of them successful, against 
advancing Israeli land forces in the Sinai Peninsula. And um, nevertheless, most of those uh, uh, sorties either fail to attack properly the uh, Israeli land uh, forces, and also some of the Egyptian air force were shot down by the Israeli interceptors over Sinai. There's one more thing I would like to say before we jump ahead to the second and third day of the war. Still, the first few hours of the war. As you asked earlier, Israel assumed that it would take about six hours to knock down the Egyptian air force. During those six hours, the first hours of the war, almost the first day of the war, if you may, <coughs> the entire Israeli air force will be busy dealing with the Egyptian air force, while Israeli land forces need to advance into Sinai, and they need closer support. How do you provide closer support when all of your fighter jets are busy uh, attacking Egyptian airfields? And the answer is the Fuga Magister uh, training aircraft. Back as, as far as 1964, did the Israeli Air Force saw it in advance, this, this problem, and equipped the training aircraft, the Fuga Magister, which were in no way any match to any MiG, to any fighter jet, uh, equipped them with uh, air-to-ground rockets and uh, formed a special squadron based upon the Israeli Air Force Flight School. And during the first day of the war, those 45 Fuga Magister training aircraft were the only ground support aircraft of the Israeli Air Force. They did lose three or four aircraft with, with their pilots, but they made the difference as far as the Israeli land force. I find it incredible that they were able to utilize every aircraft in that way. It's a, it, I mean, it, as an idea, it's great, but in practice, to be able to actually pull that off and pull it off so effectively and ensure that every pilot and every aviator in every position is able to work towards that goal based on this, you know, somewhat impromptu, albeit planned uh, operation, is just a phenomenal success story, really. So after Operation Focus then, and uh, when the Mirage 3s are available for close air support, is that the main role of the Israeli Air Force going forward, or do they continue a more strategic bombardment of, of Egypt? Once all of the, or most of the um, uh, Air Force element of Egypt, Jordan, and Syria is taken out of the equation, the focus of the Israeli Air Force is not strategic attack, it's close air support and interdiction aimed at assisting the Israeli land forces in the Sinai Peninsula. The air force is the key to the ground force very swift advance on the battlefield. The Israelis were able, consequently, to reach the Suez Canal, which is about 200 kilometers from the border, within four days. And after those four days, Egypt signed a ceasefire and Egypt lost the Sinai Peninsula with most of, the, of its land forces that were over there originally. The same thing applies to Jordan. At the time, Jordan controlled the West Bank. The Jordanian army stationed some of its uh, brigades 
inside the West Bank. And uh, beginning on the night of the first day of the war, June 5th, Israeli land forces also went into a series of clashes against those brigades with the assistance of the Israeli Air Force, which was free for closer support. Now, the Jordanian brigades, they had, by the way, American-made tanks, some of them superior to the tanks operated by Israel, but they were facing both Israeli land forces and the Israeli Air Force with no air force of their own to back them up. Also in the West Bank, the Israeli Air Force success was the key for the very swift advance of the IDF forces within the West Bank. And after three days, on June 7th, was Israel able to occupy Eastern Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem, and eventually the entire West Bank. By the end of the fourth day, the war was practically over. Egypt was knocked out. Jordan was knocked out. What about Syria? After the air clashes in the first day of the war, Syria did not do anything on the ground and its air force, the remaining air force, uh, patrolled over strategic targets in Syria, Damascus and so on, uh, but did not take any offensive missions against Israel. So practically the war was over, but for several reasons, Israel opted on the fifth day of the war to launch an attack against the Syrian Golan Heights in order to take advantage of this war and to remove the Syrian threat to Israeli settlements in the Galilee. And obviously, all of the Israeli defense forces, land forces that were available at the time, were moved to northern Israel especially paratroopers, and the entire Israeli Air Force was also focusing on a very modest piece of land called the Golan Heights. And within 36 hours <clears throat> until the end of the second, uh, the sixth day of the war, uh, the Golan Heights was held by Israel. Now, usually when we talk about the sixth day war, we see uh, the fighter jets it's, uh, we see it as a fighter jet war. But on this occasion, the campaign in the Golan Heights, Israeli Air Force contributed to the final outcome by airlifting a paratrooper brigade into the operational deep of the, of the front using helicopters, both S-58 helicopters and Super Frelon helicopters, thus fulfilling the third element successfully fulfilling the third element of the IDF, which I stressed earlier, Air Force, Armour and Paratroop. Now, we've spoken a lot about Israeli successes, but were there any setbacks? I mean, how costly was this operation? Did Israel lose many jets during Operation Focus? Israel, uh, Israeli Air Force uh, made logged just short of 3,000 sorties, during which lost 46 fighter jets. Now, that's a quarter of what it had in hand at the beginning of the war. Bear in mind that during most of the war, it faced no surface-to-air missile, no effective interceptor uh, threat. Uh, most losses were to AAA fire. 
Israel also lo- Israel Air Force also lost 24 uh, pilots killed and seven un- others POWs. Operation Focus was a one-time show. The Arabs quickly learned their lessons, built hardened air shelters, built more robust airfields with various runways, and also uh, managed within six to 12 months to uh, cover their losses with uh, new equipment from the Soviet Union. While Israel, just after the war, faced an embargo, arms embargo, by France, which was its main supplier of aircraft, and um, also a short-time, short-lived embargo even from the United States. Uh, so this, the first six months after the war were, not, were quite you know, blue for, for Israel. So you've brilliantly shown there how air power was used instrumentally during the Six Days War to bring about an incredibly swift victory. If we can conclude then, what were the main factors supporting this air power response? Was it that the Israeli Air Force or the IDF in general were just so well trained and so agile? I think uh, your point is, is, is the correct answer. Uh, the Israel Air Force was very well trained based upon excellent intelligence on all targets. It was well suited for the challenges at the time. And the challenge was mainly fighter jets knocking them down, either on the ground or in the air. And uh, apart from knocking down about 500 uh, military aircraft on the ground in both Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and even Iraq, Israel also, uh, Israel Air Force also shot down about 60 enemy jets uh, in the air. So their ability there to use the Mirage 3 as both a fighter, interceptor and bomber was, was quite crucial then, being able to adapt to those various scenarios at, at incredibly short notice. Yes. The main concept of the Israel Air Force, to use every asset as a multi-role aircraft, or uh, being the Mirage 3, not just an interceptor, but also a fighter bomber, uh, the Fuga Magister, not just a training aircraft, but also a light attack aircraft, filling in the gap of the first few hours of, of the war for closer support, um, using every available pilot, being it a regular one, an emergency position one, a reserve one, and also taking advantage of Israel being a very, at the time, small country, able to shift its air power and even some of its land forces from one front to another within hours. It's an incredible story, it really is. And thank you for so brilliantly describing that for us uh, and conveying the, the, the significance of air power. I think from that example, it is clear that if you want to win a war, you need to get your air power right. Thank you very much. And uh, it was a pleasure and an honor for me. What an incredible story. The way in which the Air Force, the Israeli Air Force, was able to utilize every resource to its fullest and be able to adapt to changing operational contexts is is truly remarkable. 
It's amazing what can be achieved when an organisation can focus on a clear objective and build understanding based on careful planning and diligent intelligence gathering. Now, the Six-Day War clearly highlights the massive importance of air power. There's no doubt about that. Without it, wars cannot be won easily. Next up, we have an episode dedicated to learning the lessons from the British campaign in Helmand Province, Afghanistan. For anybody that was either involved in the conflict or Afghanistan or a casual onlooker, this episode will surely provide you with some food for thought. So, so do listen out for that. Anyway, thanks for listening today and I'll see you next time.